0: Well, we've been singing intense songs about the great I am, and I'm wanting to get out of that that cage over there and be like, yeah, you know, and uh, we're praying prayers about God breaking us, and uh, we've been heavy uh, so far, so um, not necessarily because of that, but just because this is how I wrote it, and I'm going to stick to my plan, Um, we're going to go with something that's a little lighter to open the sermon, (laughs) in the short term, relax. I don't know if you're like me. I'm sure that the answer to my question for you is, yes, you are like me. But, you know, if you want to be uh, super spiritual and cooler than me, then you can say, no, I'm not like this. But I know that for me, I get super frustrated about things sometimes that are just just silly, just dumb. You know, you ever been super frustrated about something that uh, you should never really get upset about? (laughs) You're like, no, no, I never do. That's not me. Well, I do about three or four times a day, perhaps. And and I and I get to this place where uh, something silly sets off in me this feeling like ah nothing works and here's here's why I say that it was about five years ago and uh, this this sort of silly incident embodies for me this feeling of, of sort of groaning with the brokenness of the world um, I, I was at uh, an unnamed fast food restaurant in Johnson City on the way back to G Vegas one day and uh, and and I won't name the restaurant It uh, has served billions and billions, let's just say. Uh, I have now decided, by the way, that they've served millions and millions incorrectly because uh, I ordered at the time a hamburger, okay? Not a cheeseburger. A hamburger, no cheese, 86 the cheese, without cheese, please no cheese. I'd have been happy with, you know, buns and meat. But I get about half a mile down the road, and uh, (laughs) I'm all excited to pump my veins full of cholesterol, and I I open the wrapper to find the burger smothered in disgusting plastic cheese. It was so frustrating to me, Uh, and I don't exactly remember why I had been frustrated that day. Uh, In fact, I know that I had a frustrating morning, and I was excited for lunch because I could you know, eat a burger that I probably shouldn't be eating uh, to sort of assuage my, my feelings. Uh, so, so I get there and I'm frustrated. I don't even know what I was frustrated about, but, but this cheeseburger upset me. So I thought to myself, I am going to show them. And uh, so what I did was I kept on down the road and uh, I decided I'd, I'd go to the unnamed competitor uh, that is named after a little girl with red hair. So <laughs> I did that uh, as, as if... Mac- as if that other place cared because I'd already paid them money. So I, so I go to this place and open the wrapper halfway down a mile or so, a few blocks, and disgusting plastic cheese. Uh, it must have been two or three slices in, the, in that burger. And, and I just, I sort of lost it. It was zero for two for fast food fails for me today, for, for that day. Now, now, I say that as sort of a silly example, and, and I realize that that is rather unimportant in the whole scheme of things. But that incident for me personally has come to sort of typify the feeling this side of heaven that we all experience. That listen, things are broken. That n- things just don't work right in the world. Part of maturing in life is sort of understanding, holy cow, they're so much more broken than I ever used to thought that, think that they were. Things just don't work right in a world that is broken. And and, and friends, I don't have to tell you this, you know it's true, life this side of heaven can be extremely frustrating. That's something Scripture tells us at the very beginning in Genesis 3 when God is cursing the ground, cursing the world for the sin of Adam and Eve. It's a picture of frustration. Pain in childbearing, control issues in relationships, the weeds that, that literally make the growth difficult, working and working and working with very little fruit. The productivity of Eden, friends, has become a world now where you have to open your bag to check the order before you drive away. It's a world that's broken. It doesn't work right. Romans 8.20 that we looked at last week says that creation was subjected to futility. That's what futility means is the frustration of a world that's broken by sin. Life is hard. It's full of tribulation, very real tribulation, and flat out the world is broken. And that extends far beyond, of course, the small and unimportant problems of cheese on hamburgers to truly painful things that we've all experienced, that that many of you all know in your life, cancer, death, betrayal, murder in our own community this week. Gossip, slander, abuse. There are, there are real and painful parts of life. And everyone experiences them. Romans 8 describes this as a state of groaning. And Scripture takes seriously the trials and the sufferings of this life. They are not, as some Eastern religions like to consider them, this, this figment of our imagination... That, are, that that's to be meditated away as unreal. No, suffering is real. Scripture talks about it that way. And our bodies and our spirits groan. sort of feel it in the bones because of the fallen world we live in. But but a wonderful world sometimes, and a wonderful word sometimes in Scripture. But as we talked about last week, for the believer in Christ, that is not all there is. Because see, friends, for the unbeliever groaning is all there is. They, they groan, they feel it, and there's no hope for the future. But in Romans 8.18, I want you to turn there real quick before we jump in at 28. In Romans 8.18, we studied this a little bit last week, Uh, Paul says this, and this is a guy who has experienced suffering on a level that most of us will never experience. He's experienced great suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to look it up, it's a great passage. He says this, this is a guy who says, For I consider, in other words, I count it as certainty, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we experience now is justifiably called suffering. It's, it's hard and it's ugly. We don't want to minimize that. But the reality, Paul says, about what we have in Christ is that eternity in glory with Him is, is so amazing. It's so beyond description that it doesn't even compare to the suffering of this life. We, we said last week, and I think this is a great illustration, you can compare a cup of water with the ocean... That's a comparison. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because this is tiny in comparison, but, but not infinitely different. A lot of these become this. It's a worthy comparison, but it's a big difference that you can at least understand. But Paul says, this isn't even that. That is so amazing that the sufferings of this don't even compare to that. Once you get that straight, once we get that through the Holy Spirit's work in us, (laughs) life this side of heaven, where the presence of God in us makes known His glory, becomes something where a piece, a part, sum of that kingdom where He rules and reigns becomes real in us. That is mind-blowing. And that's what Scripture is teaching us. That's the whole project. That is the project. And what he's been telling us here in chapter 8 is that mercifully, we don't groan like the world without hope. We groan in hope of glory. We groan in hope of that vision. Which means that here and now, today, because that's real and God is making some of it, not the infinitude, but some of it made known in our lives through the Spirit you can live with confidence in Christ because you know where you're going. So that sort of encapsulates where we've been in verse 28 where we'll jump in now. It just sort of carries on in that same vein. It carries on in that same vein giving us confidence. This isn't entirely to glory yet, but it continues to paint this picture of living now in the light of glory. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for us all to live now in light of glory. And uh, when we get to the end of chapter 8 here, which is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, you'll kind of see the motivating factor of this in all this for God is love. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about our response to that. So jump in at verse 28. It says, And we know, as we often do, pause after like two words here. Uh, I want to talk about this word know. We know. This is an intimate knowledge. This isn't just uh, an intellectual scent to right beliefs. That's part of the picture. You have to know and understand some correct doctrine and beliefs to follow Christ. Uh, But if those correct beliefs don't usher forth in action, if, if doxology doesn't become something we live out, if orthodoxy doesn't become orthopraxy, if it's not something that's real and practical in your life, then you're a pretend fake hypocrite. We know, he says. So the question right off the bat for us as believers is, do you actually know what follows? Do you know that verse 28 and following is the case? Or do you just kind of believe that it is supposed to be true in me and in you? He says, we know that for those who love God, this is about believers, those who love God. Press pause for just another second here. I want to, I want to point out one other quick thing. sort of an aside. This whole passage here from 28 to 39 starts and ends with love. At the very very, very beginning here in 28, it says, We know that for those who love God. And then in verses 37 and 39, it talks about God's love for us. It's sort of bookended on either side with love, which is pretty cool. So the motivating factor in God's heart in all of this is his perfect and unending love for the creation he made. But here it calls his children, at the beginning, those who love God. We know that for those who love God, All things, not some things, not most things, not the things that fall in line with our goals for ourselves, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those who are called according to His purpose of His glory being made known. Now here's the main question for us in verse 28. There are lots of other questions we could ask, but we're going to answer this one for a bit here. What is the good for which all things work together? What is the good for for which all things work together. We must answer this question before we move on because many come across this verse in 828 and they get all excited because they think uh, that it means that God is working to accomplish in me all the amazing things that uh, I know I am meant to achieve in life uh, based on what I think is good and what I have always dreamed of and, well, based on me because I'm awesome. Uh, hashtag winning. That is a self-centered perversion and a misuse of this verse. So by the way, quick plugs, speaking of misused verses, uh, starting in two weeks, we're going to be doing seven weeks of uh, misused verses in Scripture. It's going to be a lot of fun. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge me, lest you be judged. If I hear one more person say you can't judge me, Matthew 7 will be like, yeah, I can. Um, Matthew eighteen twenty. Matthew eighteen twenty for where two or three are gathered, in my name there I am in the midst of them. That has a context around it that that very specifically talks about what that means. It doesn't just mean if you get a couple people around, like God's going to make it right. Like you decide what's right because you got two or three. So you know. First Corinthians ten thirteen is one of my favorite. Uh, misused verses. Uh, a lot of people like to say uh, that 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not tempt you beyond what you can handle, uh, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A lot of people think that 1 Corinthians ten thirteen is like, God can't ever give you more than you can handle. What if God wants to give you more than you can handle so that you actually have to depend on Him in the Holy Spirit. I don't know, sounds to me like the Christian life. So, we're going to get to the heart of the matter in about seven verses that are pretty cool. We probably know most of those verses. Um, It's going to be fun um, because we need to make a regular practice of allowing Scripture to upend, to turn around our preconceived notions. Uh, That's why it's called a sword, Hebrews 4.12. So, so, I point all that out, not just as an aside, but to say that 828 here in Romans is a verse like that. It's very easily misused by people. Uh, In fact, people often misuse this verse uh, to convince themselves and others that God wants to make them rich and healthy. This is a heresy called the prosperity gospel. And this is a subset of word of faith teachers, not all of them, but some of them that you can easily find on TV. Uh, you'll You'll hear people talk about health, wealth, name it and claim it claim it. You'll, you'll hear them blab on about sowing the seed. Uh, this is, in my mind, heretical teaching that is not scripture. And unfortunately, it is one of the ugly legacies of American Christianity that is being exported to poor countries all over the world, giving the false impression that God will bring you earthly riches if you say yes to Jesus. So, so just come on along, get baptized, and God will, God will give you enough that you need in, in terms of money and prosperity I think it's hogwash, and those who teach it will be held responsible. What Scripture tells us, on the contrary, is that the riches that God wants to give us are kingdom riches. Blessing from the beginning has primarily been kingdom riches that result in His goodness and glory being made known. If He blesses you, it's to be a blessing. If He gives you His character and nature, it's not so that you can just sit here for an hour on Sunday and enjoy feeling good about yourself with other people who know we have Jesus. Kingdom riches are given to you to give away. Infinite kingdom riches were given to you in the first place by somebody whose heart is to give them away. That's how perverse the world is. That's how broken it is when we believe the incredible lie from the evil one that we are placed on this earth to be the center of the universe. What a joke that is when we act like that. What God wants to give us is infinitely more precious than all of the world's treasures. Jesus tells lots of parables like this, but in one verse, in Matthew 13, 44, He tells this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, his excitement to go back and find it and to have the kingdom, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. If that is how precious kingdom riches really are, then we know the answer to our question, what is the good for which all things work together? The good. The good is God formed in you for your salvation and for His glory. That's what good is. That is the good toward which all things work together for those who love God. Which means a whole bunch of things in your life that don't feel, seem, look good can be used for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What do you think redemption is? It's just a figment of our imaginations if it's not something God makes happen for His glory. Good is God being formed in you for your salvation and for His glory. So Romans 8.28 here is a sort of cosmic, it's a statement about all reality. All things are working together for our good if it means that God is being formed in us for our salvation and for His glory. This is something we've said at FCC a few times in the last number of years here. That, that all circumstances in our lives can be used for sanctification if you will let it be. That doesn't mean you have to like all of it. The, friends, the Christian life is a struggle in part because the circumstances aren't easy. The world is broken. We do suffer, but we don't groan like the world. We suffer in hope, in hope of glory, knowing that all things work together for good. The good that we get to experience, the most incredible project the world has ever known, which is infinite God, His character and nature being made known in us. Not perfectly and completely yet till glorification, but some of it through the Spirit. So that we can be a witness who knows and experiences and lives the reality of the kingdom in the here and now. You know why you're not a witness, why you're not effective, why people around you don't want to know Jesus Christ? Because you're living in your power. You don't seem to need need that kingdom riches for you to live day by day. He says, we know intimately that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of God's glory being made known. The amazing project of God's goodness being manifested through His people. It doesn't get better than that. It simply never gets better than that. Now, Verses 29 through 30 sort of show us the theological backstory for how we got to this place. We're not going to spend a lot of time here today. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time here. We're going to answer the question, does God really control everything? And uh, I'm going to attempt to answer the impossible theological questions of the already and not yet this side of heaven. Uh, But for now... Uh, There's something we want to pick out, a couple things. Look at 29 here. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And then this is the phrase we care about. You might want to underline this, circle this, star this, highlight this, hashtag this. To be conformed to to the image of His Son. In other words, God's eternal purpose for us is to be shaped into the likeness of His Son. Uh, A cool parallel passage. There are lots of parallel passages, but one that's really cool that you may want to look at. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and all of the context there. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with unveiled face, unlike Moses who had to have a veiled face, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You may want to look up 1 Corinthians 15.49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of dust. Heaven. Colossians 3.10 says that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are foreknown, we are predestined for the purpose of being conformed to the image of his son. In other words, from eternity past, God knew and he set us apart for the purpose of being conformed to the image of his son, who is the perfect image of God, the father. In order that He, it says, meaning Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and even glorified those who are His. Now look at something interesting in verse 30 here. Every single one of those terms we've just noted, predestined, called, Uh, Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, is in the past tense. Now think about that for a second. Foreknew, he's foreknown, he's predestined. That's in the past, that makes sense. He has called and justified. That's our experience now. We know what that means, that he's declared us righteous in Christ and justified us through the perfect work of Jesus. And that Jesus' perfect life, which he still lives for us, still means that our justification stands and works. But but then it says this, glorified. Wait a second. Glory hasn't happened yet, but it says we are glorified. So something weird must be going on here. What Paul is doing is he's using this this way of speaking and writing uh, that was often used in Judaism from rabbis and prophets. It's called the prophetic past. The prophetic past. That is when a predicted event is considered so certain that it's going to happen, that is described already as having taken place. It's when a predicted event is so certain It's considered so certain to happen that it is described in the here and now as having already taken place. In other words, God has been planning all along for His people to know Him and for an all-knowing and all-powerful God to plan something like that means it's going to happen. So as far as God's plan is concerned in His heart and His mind, it is as good as done that a believer is glorified. Think about that. That's so huge. It means that in the here and now, that is the vision of who you are and who you will be. Not this. Not all this stuff out here. For the believer, your vision has to be here. It has to be there. From eternity past to eternity future, God is remaking us through the Holy Spirit. And what He's doing is He's creating a new humanity that that. This is the amazing part. That shares and displays God's glory. That is His eternal purpose for every one of us. To share, to share and display the glory of God. In comparison to that, Every other goal we've ever had for our life put together is infinitely worthy of being thrown on the trash heap. Compared to the amazing project of through the Spirit, God fashioning, shaping, making us from the inside out in our hearts people who love to do what is good. That's His purpose. And it's an amazing purpose. It's an amazing vision that that redefines what we think about who we are and what the world is. And and it's such an overwhelming, it's such a beautiful, amazing project and vision. God's redemptive plan that Paul looks at that and he he starts to write words like the end of chapter 8. Which are just beautiful, beautiful words. Some of the most amazing words will come across in Scripture. Let's, let's go through them here a little bit. As he brings to a close what he started at the, end, at the beginning of chapter 5. Let these sort of wash over you as we read them. And so he's encapsulating all this amazing stuff and he says, verse 31, What then? What then shall we say to these things? What is the response to the amazing truth that God has justified in Jesus and declared us righteous and given us a new identity as sons and daughters? What is the response? Keep reading. If God is for us, and God is for you. Think of that. He's in it to win it for your sake. He's in your corner. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, it's like saying that suffering doesn't even compare with that. If God is for us, nothing else even compares to that enough to be said that it is against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He, meaning the Father, who did not spare His own Son, Jesus, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, with Him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? If we are so closely identified with Jesus that Jesus is raised to glory because He deserves it and He's perfect, then we, because we are identified with Him, counted righteous along with Him, will likewise be raised in glory. If He gave Him up, will He not also graciously give us all things? Verse 33, Who then? Who? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God's in our corner, who can accuse us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Not somebody else around you. Not the evil one. Not yourself. Not yourself. Who is to condemn? No one. Because we have God's own Son who intervenes. The next little bit there. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding. He's intervening for us. And because of all that, verse 35... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or cancer, or abuse, or slander, or abandonment, or anything that you can count as personal tragedy. Can anything that you count in that category as suffering separate you from the love of Christ? Because friends, when we experience hardship and pain and trial, we ask that question. Am I being separated from you? He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, as it is written, verse 36 in Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things and even these things, We are more than conquerors. Super conquerors is the word there. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There's that love piece again. God's motivation for all of this from beginning to end was love. For I am sure, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case He forgot it, Paul says, will be able to to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we experience suffering, in truth, it, it, it feels for us like we have been abandoned. And so we, when we face life's troubles, sometimes we ask, can anything separate me from the love of Christ? in the person of Jesus Christ, God answered that question before we asked it. We have seen God's answer to this question. Can anything separate me from You? No. (laughs) No, God says, I love You. He says, I died for you. Friends, because we, are, because we are loved, because we are loved, we can live with abandon. Because the vision of who we are in Christ is so clear to us in the Holy Spirit. We can live here and now through kingdom riches available to us. Because we are loved, we can live with abandon. Fully, fully trusting that a life of passionate devotion to Christ is far beyond being worth it. We are free to live without fear because we know not just here, because we know we are loved. One of my favorite illustrations uh, of what it's like to live without fear because we know that we're loved Uh, tells of a father and a son that were out for a hike one day. They were uh, climbing around (laughs) and uh, the father suddenly heard a voice from above yell, Hey Dad! Catch me! And the dad turned just as his son, Zach, was jumping off the rock above him. Uh, The the son, Zach, had jumped first and and yelled second. Jumped and said, hey, dad, catch me. So they both kind of fell to the ground in laughter. And for a moment, the father could hardly talk and he caught his breath. And when he did, he finally said, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? And Zach responded with calm. He said, well, sure, because you're my dad. Because you're my dad. The son's assurance, Zach's assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. This little boy could jump first and ask questions later. He could live to the hilt because he had a dad who could be trusted. It's even more true for us. What God's doing among us, what He's doing in us, what He wants to do through us is to have us live like little Zachs. To live with full force and passion, knowing that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy. Knowing that the riches that we have because of a Christ who lived for us a perfect sinless life and then died for our sins, made available to us perfect relationship where we in the here and the now can know kingdom riches live through us and can love to do what is good and what is right So that God's glory is made known through us. And that is, that is who we are. People who are free. Free to live without fear. Because we know that we are loved.